Welcome back to the Florida History Podcast. I'm Carter Krishnire. I'm Robert Bucciolato. Robert, it's primary season, political primary season, as we record this. Some of our listeners may not know that for years, the Florida primary had a decisive role in the nominating process for both the Democrats and the Republicans. The primary was in March, but it was very early relative to other states, and especially other big states, other southern states, for much of its history. The primary calendar was very different uh, when you talk about the staggering between New Hampshire in February and California and New Jersey in June in those days. And Florida played a very, very big role for generations. Yeah, and just for a little bit of background for anybody listening, um, I think we're we're kind of accustomed to the whole primary season now. It's it's definitely been the bread and butter of running for president for the past forty years. But prior to that, there was only a handful of different primaries, and even if you won all of them, going into the convention, it didn't really, I mean, it wasn't that much of a home court advantage to have won the, you know, New Hampshire and the, the Wisconsin primary and, and a few others. It wasn't until you saw this uh, really from McGovern, um, but from 1968 on, the rules changed in terms of how you could select delegates and you just had this huge bumper crop of primaries. Um, it, it went from five or six to 30 in the space of two years. And it was really, um, it wasn't until Carter won in 76 that the caucuses were even in Iowa were even a, a fixture but it originally went New Hampshire and then it went uh, South Carolina or Florida and that was that was pretty much it it would be um, until April or May before you would know who the nominee was nowadays um you know, we, we know by the time the all or nothing California primary, which was so decisive in all of the candidacies of the 70s and the 80s, uh, we are already planning our convention. We're already figuring out who the nominee is going to elect for their VP. Um, and Florida for a long time was an important part of that new era of primaries because it was a southern state. It was also um, a large state. But as we've told multiple times on this show, Florida has a complex nature compared to its other southern uh, colleagues. They can go either way. There's an independent streak about them. They're much more willing to vote third party or to vote absentee. They're much more willing to uh, make a stand, to get involved and side with some really uh, unattractive candidates like a George Wallace than a lot of the other states in the Beltway or, or that nature. So it was a, it was a really big um, indicator of how somebody would perform regionally who was running for president. And that was the, the great big test was 
was you had to win New Hampshire, and then you had to win something in the South, and then win something in the North, and that was your that was your way to show that you were marketable. So, Robert, you just mentioned George Wallace. Let's talk about the 1972 Democratic primary. The national media talked about Florida being the state where George Wallace and his segregationist platform would be stopped because Florida was really a northern state, is what many in the national media said. Well, in reality, Florida was a very southern state. Uh, The national media was basing their perception of Florida on Miami and Miami alone. Dade County, which was Miami, it's now called Miami-Dade County, had voted overwhelmingly for Hubert Humphrey in 1968 in the general election uh, against Richard Nixon and George Wallace, George Wallace running as a third-party segregationist candidate. If I'm not mistaken, Wallace won the majority of Florida counties, but Nixon actually won the state. Uh, But uh, Humphrey had carried Miami-Dade overwhelmingly. Leroy Collins, in his run for Senate, Liberal Leroy, as he was known by then, and we've done a show previously on Leroy Collins, carried Dade County by an overwhelming majority, did not win anywhere else in the state, including in his home county of Leon. So there was a misperception about Florida and about Florida being maybe a more northern state. As it turns out, George Wallace in the 1972 Democratic primary, won 65 of 67 counties. The only counties he did not win were Dade and Alachua, and George McGovern finished, I think, 25 points back or something like that. Oh, I mean, it was it was a staggering amount, and you're absolutely right. The the national press corps they they kind of painted this notion that Florida was a silver bullet, that it was it was a bunch of older transplants that were sort of educating the the locals and and sort of moderating them. And the reality is. Um, Pretty transparently, if you look at all into the state's history from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, we were a far more stereotypical southern state that time, during that time. We were a a much more white, male-driven institution back then. And also, we were really, even though we don't like to admit it, we were still um, having a hard, hard time swallowing things like busing. Um, and that was, and that was the interesting thing, um, because not only was he on the ballot, but there was also a busing amendment, and then there was another amendment that basically, uh, it how it was worded was you basically had to, if you were going to vote for it, you basically um, were voting that you didn't want to fund all the different school districts. So it was the undertone was basically that you were a racist and nobody wanted to be viewed as a racist, yet uh, the anti-busing and Wallace got huge margins. And then you had this pretty progressive civil rights amendment alongside that got the same margin because people didn't want to be thought of as racist. <laughs> and so it really it really perplexed the national press corps because they saw that something like that, that this progressive um, school funding amendment could pass, 
and that there was all of these people from the north, and yet there was still this very southern, very racially motivated undercurrent to all of this. And Wallace used it to great effect because he was able to market himself as not a a white male or not a white southerner, but as a blue-collar man. He was able to find that um, that great proponent of working class issues, and that's what he stuck with, and that's why I think he was so is successful in '72. So let's fast forward to 1976. Jimmy Carter, who you've spent a lot of time with, who you've written a lot about, who you've written a book about. Wins Iowa and New Hampshire. But by this time, the media, they're, they're convinced Florida's a southern state, and they expect George Wallace to win Florida. George Wallace is running again for president in 1976 on an anti-busing platform. He had uh, modified some of his racist language, uh, outwardly racist language. It was much more covert at that point, much more subtle uh, than it had been in 68, and certainly more so than in 72 even. Jimmy Carter has a one-on-one. He basically has to be George Wallace in Florida to continue on as the front runner. There was a lot of vested interest from the other Democratic candidates and from the party in general that Carter take Wallace out in Florida because if Wallace won Florida, as he did in 72, he could make things really messy and take it all the way to the convention. So that was the Democratic side. On the Republican side, you had the incumbent president or the sitting president, Gerald Ford. He had been uh, he had not been elected as vice president or president, but became assumed the presidency after Richard Nixon resigned. Winning uh, the Republican nomination pretty easily at that point, Ronald Reagan, who's running an insurgent campaign to the right, is going to be out of the race if he doesn't win Florida. And guess what? Ronald Reagan doubles down, triples down, wins Florida, ends up taking the race all the way to the convention, goes on a run, wins North Carolina with Jesse Helms' help, uh, wins California, his home state, and goes all the way to the nomination where Ford was nominated. But Florida, decisive in 1976. And oh, I was just going to say, um, you know, in 72, I think Wallace sort of took it for granted that he was going to win because he was he was a neighbor of this state. And very much the same way in 76, which, you know, bear in mind, he had had an assassination attempt. He was not up to his, the fighting strength that he had enjoyed the decade prior. So he started that campaign thinking that he had to focus on winning over the North because he basically just assumed that Florida was a given. And meanwhile, the Carters, they basically lived in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Florida. They were probably them and to a, another ex, a larger extent Reagan were the first candidates to really stake their claim in Florida and all the other Democrats they used Carter um, because they assumed that he would be able to knock off this race-baiting Alabamian because he was also a southerner but he was, you know, their kind of southerner. So all of them declined to enter the primary so that he could have more of a chance to upset Wallace. 
And of, of course, they thought that once he had won Florida, they would be able to beat him in the West and in, in the North. But of course, by then, he had won Florida, and it was a, a much larger prize than they had anticipated. Robert, let's move to the 1980s. I was a kid. I was not even 10 years old, but I was into politics. I watched the news a lot. I was a nerdy kid. 1984. I remember Gary Hart winning Florida, uh, beating Walter Mondale, really kind of surprising people, and then taking the race all the way to the nomination, uh, all the way to the convention in San Francisco that year. Uh, Mondale did win the nomination, but Hart uh, gave the Democrats maybe a middle lane that they chose not to take against Ronald Reagan in 84. 1988, Al Gore, future vice president, at the time a U.S. senator from Tennessee with a moderate voting record, I wouldn't say a conservative Democrat, uh, he wasn't a David Boren or a, a, a that sort of Democrat or, or, or James Exon from, uh, uh, from Nebraska, he was a, a moderate Democrat, Gore decides Iowa and New Hampshire are too liberal for him, the Democratic Party electorates in Iowa and New Hampshire, in those days, Iowa in particular was really far to the left in terms of their preferences for uh, candidates for the nomination, and it's a caucus system as we know, so that also favors candidates with great activist following. So Gore skips Iowa and New Hampshire decides he's going to make his stand in the South. And he gets South to Super Tuesday. He wins most of the states on Super Tuesday, but Michael Dukakis stops him in Texas and in Florida. Florida was then on Super Tuesday, regional primary day for, and I should have mentioned that that started in 84 when Hart wanted Florida was part of Super Tuesday. 88 again, part of Super Tuesday. Dukakis goes on to win the nomination. 1992... Iowa, again, very uh, liberal. Tom Harkin, who was from Iowa, was running for president. He wins Iowa. Uh, uh, Massachusetts, former Massachusetts Senator and Congressman Paul Saunders wins New Hampshire. Bill Clinton's buddy, Zell Miller, the governor of Georgia, who, by the way, had not yet become this uh, radicalized, pro-George W. Bush, pro-Iraq war, a conservative Democrat. At the time, he had been a very moderate Democrat. I know uh, later in 2004, Jimmy Carter denounced him, said he, he felt personally betrayed uh, by a guy who he had worked with uh, in Georgia state government uh, in Zell Miller. And uh, Zell Miller even challenged Chris Matthews to a duel on live television, said he wished he could have dueled Chris Matthews, the MSNBC host. Uh, Matthews, of course, questioning his uh, his views on the Iraq war because he was attacking John Kerry's patriotism. Anyway, Zell Miller at one time was a mainstream Democrat, not a, uh, a, a George W. Bush follower. And he moved the Georgia primary up to give Bill Clinton an early win. But it was the next week in Florida when Bill Clinton squarely put himself in position to win the nomination, becoming the first Democrat in the modern era that had not won Iowa or New Hampshire, but won the nomination. In fact, he's still the only Democrat that did not win either Iowa or New Hampshire, but won the Democratic Party nomination and, of course, was the president for two terms. And, and you know, every once in a while you hear a commentator say, you know, this, this person that's running for president, he's not very strong in Iowa and he's not very strong in New Hampshire, but he's polling so well in all of these other larger, important states. Why don't they just skip those first two? And the reason is because of Al Gore. Uh, Al Gore had a, a very a keen 
sense of how important the Florida primary was, much so than Walter Mondale. But in basically skipping the first two primaries, he still thought that he was playing by the the old primary game of the 1970s where you could skip, you can leapfrog around and gain a coalition of large states. And by then, it became the sort of dog and pony show that it is today that you have to win in Iowa, you have to win in New Hampshire, and then you got to make uh, a real prize out of Florida and South Carolina. So it really wasn't, you're right, until, um, until Bill Clinton that you saw the sort of coronation in Florida that awaited Jimmy Carter in 76 and, and Wallace in 72. And then from from then on, even though there was a... Robert, let me just jump in there for a minute. I want to point out that uh, Tom Harkin, who was a senator from Iowa, I think I just mentioned this, was a very liberal senator and ended up being one of Bill Clinton's great backers the next eight years. Uh, won the Iowa caucus going away, obviously home senator. Then New Hampshire, Paul Songus, who had been a U.S. senator from Massachusetts prior to that, had been in the in the U.S. House from uh, the district in Massachusetts, low, the Lowell area that adjoins uh, uh, that adjoins uh, New Hampshire, and was basically uh, he, he had advertised on television in New Hampshire for many years. Uh, in that period, won the New Hampshire primary. Now, Bill Clinton was able to spin in and say, "Hey, there were two uh, favorite son candidates, so that's why I didn't win either Iowa or New Hampshire." The reality is. I think Songus had not actually run in New Hampshire or in uh, in Lowell in Massachusetts since 1978 uh, at that point, and it was 1992, so it had been 14 years, I think, I believe, since he had actually run, and then prior to that, he was in, in the U.S. House, but Clinton, as he always does, was able to masterfully spin it and make New Hampshire and Iowa not really count that much, and uh, obviously, as we talked about, use Florida to great advantage uh, to win the nomination and become president. Well, and, and, you know, that's that's the great oddity about these three primary states is the fact that uh, Iowa and New Hampshire are impenetrable when it comes to trying and and, you know, persuade them to vote a certain way or, you know, they're they're not at all able to be influenced. They have a certain view, they have a certain way, and it, it usually ends one way or the other for one specific candidate. They don't think in terms of national polls. Then you have something like Florida, which is it's so uncertain. Nobody ever knows how it's going to land. And they are Florida is very much so um, influenced by past success and by poll numbers. So it was it was a huge deal for Bill Clinton, who was basically left for dead before he won second place in New Hampshire, to spin straw into gold here in Florida and then throughout the rest of the South. Um, what I what I was going to say was was that there were huge divisions in the Democratic Party 
in the 1980s and the 1990s um, nationally, but also very prevalently in the South and in Florida. And as you go on, you start seeing a decline in power of the Florida primary, mainly because the Democratic Party is losing influence in the state. So in 2008, the Republican legislature decides, with some Democratic help, the primary sponsor of the bill in the the Senate was actually a Democrat. They are going to move Florida's primary up, and they're going to reassert Florida's influence in the nominating process. But the problem is the RNC and DNC both have codified rules in the party nominating process that protects the status of Iowa and New Hampshire and a window with which you cannot move a primary within a certain number of days of New Hampshire. So what ends up happening is the Democrats say, your votes in Florida don't count. And uh, the Republicans say, yeah, your votes in Florida kind of count, but not really. They don't really count. So Florida, in fact, is at the back of the line, not at the front of the line after that legislative change. And and that was, um, in, in terms of the Republican side, I think Rudy Giuliani, I don't think his campaign could have recovered after that decision. Yes. Because correct, he, correct. he had a lot of, of specifically in, in uh, South Florida, he had a lot of support and he was really banking on winning big here in Florida and he had been courting uh, the, the governor, Charlie Crist, for a very long time. Of course, Charlie Crist, uh, who at the time had poll numbers in the 60s, threw all of his support to John McCain last minute. And I, it's been mentioned rightly, I think, that, that that was a contributing factor for his nomination. As far as voting, um, during the primary that year. I don't know if you voted, but uh, I've never seen a polling uh, place more bare than that. I will actually tell you, Robert, that I always vote early or voted absentee. 2000, when I voted for Bill Bradley. Yeah, Robert, I should mention, uh, 2008, I walked, yeah, I just walked right into my polling place. I didn't get an absentee ballot or a or vote early as I had in 2000 for Bill Bradley against Al Gore in the primary. In 2004, I voted for John Edwards and uh, did, voted early. 2008, I just walked into my polling place and voted again for John Edwards, who uh, I was one of the few people who didn't vote for Bill Clinton or for, oh, excuse me, vote for Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama on that primary. I mean, I think knowing Florida didn't count, I voted for for um, Edwards, uh, who I'd voted for in 2004 and who I was a, a supporter of, had been a supporter of. I, I think had I been forced to make a vote that counted, I probably would have voted for Barack Obama because I, at the time, wanted to stop Hillary Clinton. Uh, I should mention uh, John Edwards, great fan of his. Uh, I was at the time. I, of course, I'm not a fan of his anymore after everything that happened, uh, but uh, his wife, Elizabeth, who I was a greater fan of and, of course, who passed away uh, very, very tragically, is a Floridian. So uh, that, that was part of my uh, emotional tie to, to the Edwards family and to his candidacy.
I voted for Richardson, and then I became uh, an Obama supporter. Yeah, uh, Edwards and Richardson haven't aged very well in terms of uh, of their uh, <laughs> yeah, right. their legacy. But uh, but I do have to tell you, I think uh, despite our best efforts, um, I think the cat might be out of the bag as far as our politics. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> so. So then 2012, both Herman Cain and Newt Gingrich, being from a neighboring state, Georgia, much like Jimmy Carter, thought they might be able to make a run at Florida in the Republican primary. But the establishment held Mitt Romney was more moderate than both those guys. I think we now know Mitt Romney is more moderate than most Republicans, at least most elected Republicans in the country. For those of you who might be listening to this in the future, you probably know when we're recording this now. Ends up winning Florida. Well, and, and you know, by by this time, this was the, the great oddity of the Florida primary was the fact that it cost so much money to go on TV here. You could do, um, you know, radio ads and television ads in Iowa and New Hampshire, um, you know, for about a million dollars, and that'll give you coverage for, you know, a few weeks. Here in Florida, you have to have about two hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand dollars a day for it to be effective. And, and and I would point out, Florida actually has more big media markets than even California. Yes. So it's yes. it's quite possibly the most expensive state to run a primary campaign in. And and that again, it just. Um, it just makes it even more attractive and more unobtainable for a lot of different campaigns. And it really came down to the fact that Mitt Romney um, was a more moderate, more traditional Republican. And at the time, that was basically how our state was functioning. And he had the money to play. Um, And then again, you'd see this coming full circle four years later. Yeah, so four years later, Robert, you have Donald Trump winning Florida. Jeb Bush, favorite son candidate, had the support of the entire establishment in this state. He ends up doing very poorly, trying to run in a moderate establishment lane. Marco Rubio gets a lot of that support, but it was kind of tepid. And it may explain to this day why we have so many establishment Republicans or previously establishment Republicans like Rick Wilson, Max Stepanovich, Sally Bradshaw, David Jolly, and others in this state who are now never Trumpers and are now basically aligned with the Democrats. Donald Trump romps in the Florida primary against Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio drops out of the race the next day. In fact, Trump won Florida by a similar margin to what George Wallace had won Florida by. A lot of comparisons between Trump and Wallace. Here's another one. Well, and and another thing, too, that uh, we've seen, it's happened gradually from the 1980s and 1990s to, to really the past 10 years, is that if you look at Iowa, if you look at New Hampshire, for that matter, if you look at Pennsylvania or New York, their their map and their demographics do not change. They do very, very sporadically. But for the most part, the voters, their ideals, their pocketbook issues is already baked in to the geography of the region. Florida is, it's a different state right now than it was in 08. 
the the sheer volume of people that come into our state from other states is extraordinary, and they bring their politics with Leave it there for today, Robert. You can subscribe to the Florida History Podcast wherever you find podcasts, every service out there, every service that carries podcasts carries us. So we will be back with you next week with another new edition of the Florida History Podcast. Check out our work at thefloridasqueeze.com as well.